I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. You know I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the social index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. LinkedIn presents... It's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Drew Glover. He's the founding partner of Fiat Growth and general partner at Fiat Ventures. He is no stranger to the world of growth, technology, and marketing. From his time at Steady, where he led marketplace development and growth to Namely, Fjord, and Portal A, he's navigated the ins and outs of go-to-market strategies and user acquisition. He's helped companies like Root, J.P. Morgan Chase, Adidas, and Nike bring award-winning services and partnerships to market. On the show today, we talk about his unusual career path of many different jobs, We talk about fiat growth and fiat ventures, why they make sense to go together. We talk about fintech and the marketplace for fintech, what it's achieving for society, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Drew Glover. Well, Drew, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I know we're going to have a good conversation about a lot of things. But before we get into the business side, I'd love to hear a little bit about fatherhood. I hear you're a new dad of an eight-month-old girl. How's it going? Yeah, it's actually been amazing. I had our my little daughter, first kid, 
eight months ago, and it's it's been an incredible journey thus far. I'll tell you, there's there's a couple of things that I feel like have really changed my perspective on life. One thing that's like I feel like really hard to forget as an adult is the amount of first moments a little infant has. I still have like these first moments throughout the day as a grown up, but I take them for granted. But me taking my my daughter outside and having her like touch a plant she's never touched before or see the time of day that she's never seen before and just like kind of like honoring these new firsts that a baby is having and like looking at at that in my life today and things move so fast sometimes you got to slow down and be like whoa this has never happened before this has happened before but it hasn't happened in this way so i feel like i'm honoring life in a much more special way than i was before which i i really cherish yeah i remember those early days I have a 15-year-old daughter now, so a number of years in that department. But it is nice. I mean, because to your point, like you kind of get to relive childhood a little bit, like what it is like to be a child and and everything is interesting. (laughs) I mean, like wonder and discovery and curiosity, like I pride myself on having a lot of those things, but seeing it through the eyes of a newborn is, is something special. Yeah, no, it's awesome. Well, congrats. I know I'm eight months late, but (laughs) congrats anyway. (laughs) It's never too late. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, um, let's talk about your career and and how did you end up? What was the path, I guess, to founding Fiat Growth and and now Fiat Ventures? Yeah, so I took a fairly non-traditional path in that I didn't grow up saying, hey, I want to become a venture capitalist per se. I definitely didn't grow up saying, hey, I'd love to have a growth consultancy. But I kind of had all these different jobs throughout my career. And I throughout my career I had all I definitely like felt I had the nerve and I had the confidence to kind of jump from industry to industry and learn all these really valuable tools. At the time, I'd be nervous every time I did it because I was like, man, I'm jumping from industry to industry. How is this going to impact my long-term career? And I realized today looking back, there were all these incredible tools that I learned from these very this wide range of industries that really helped me get to where I am today. So early in my career, I was working at a video production agency. I was working at a design agency. I sold commercial business insurance. I worked as a cooking category manager at a food startup. But learning all these different, all these different skills and characteristics and how to deal with different folks kind of led me to where I am today. I was lucky enough, my last stop before we founded, founded Fiat Growth was a company called Steady. Steady is a fintech company still very much alive and thriving that helps folks in the 1099 world improve their financial health. Myself and my co-founder, Alex Harris, we basically had very similar jobs. Alex was at Chime from Series A to Series D, the large neobank, basically had this role of business development and growth while I was doing the same thing at Steady. And both of our companies had millions of users. And we had all these other companies that were trying to partner with us to get their product in front of our users. So Alex and myself, we both built a marketplace at Chime and Steady. And this marketplace was basically a recommendation engine to recommend financial products to our users that we thought could improve their financial health. In the process of building out these marketplaces, Alex and I were having, call it 10 to 20 conversations a week at one point with all these companies that we thought were really interesting. Some some were great partners, some the timing wasn't right, but we started seeing this opportunity to start working with companies in the fintech space that we thought were basically going to kind of shift how the, the, the fintech landscape was, was going to be built for the foreseeable future. So 
we actually decided to start co-advising a number of companies together. Hmm. A little bit of backstory, Alex and I, we went to college together, incredible relationship. So we kind of like already had this like deep relationship and knew how to kind of feed off each other in terms of like building stuff. So we ultimately left our day jobs and had around call it 13 or 14 clients at the time. You know, they were all paying us whatever they could pay us. We hadn't really turned it into a business yet, but we definitely saw the makings of something special. So we founded Fiat Growth around four and a half years ago. And we basically just started working with the fintechs that we thought were really going to shift the way the fintech landscape was at that time. And what the trend we saw is folks were no longer just making products for the 10 to 20% of America that already had a lot of money and just needed help managing that money. But they were starting to build products for the 80% of America that were really at risk the low to middle income communities across the country that needed the most financial help, financial health, and were really looking to improve their financial lifestyle. So for us, we made that entry point into fiat growth and we saw this opportunity to where we didn't see any agencies or consultancies focused on fintech itself. And fintech was very much, it still is like this very like hot space to, to live in and thrive. Mm-hmm. So over time, we, we started building our team. Today, we have a team of 33 full-time employees. When I say we, we are growth consultants, we do everything from strategy all the way down to the execution, taking over the management of paid spend, affiliate marketing spend, strategic partnership opportunities. And yeah, it, it's really turned into this, this juggernaut in terms of us really being the leader in the fintech space. You know, The who's who of fintech brands really come to us to help either get products off the ground or to really help take their business from doing well to doing great. And we, we really take part in that journey. We also have Fiat Ventures um, and our, part of our unique model of Fiat growth as part of our contracts is we would actually get the right to invest in every company that we worked with, which means we had the first right of refusal as they were leaning into another round. If they were le- raising a Series A, they had to come to us and say, hey, do you want to invest or not? When mm-hmm. we first started doing this, we didn't have the money to invest on our own. Right. However, right. Yeah. we started kind of building this reputation of Fiat growth only works with companies that are, are winners in the space. So. Mm-hmm. As we were raising which, what is now our $25 million venture fund, we were basically going to a lot of potential investors in our fund saying, listen, if we had been investing every single time we got the right to invest at the very beginning of this thing, we would have an incredible portfolio to show off. We would get equity in a lot of these businesses, so we still had our upside. However, that first fund that, that we raised, it was really around telling the story of we have incredible access. We also have the right to invest in these companies. We're also, we have a hands-on approach to helping them grow. Also, by working with them, we have the ability to run a really deep due diligence process to prove that these companies are worth investing in prior to us writing a check. So what Fiat Ventures is today is a $25 million venture fund where the majority of our investments are companies that we worked with previously at Fiat Growth, where if we've worked with them for three months or longer, we're typically deciding if we want to invest or not. And based on how that engagement on the fiat growth side is going, we're able to make a very smart, very due diligence decision if we want to lean in with an investment or not. I know that was a long story, but there's a lot of moving parts to the fiat journey. So I wanted yeah. to make sure we got it right. <laughs> yeah, no, I love it. I love it. And I mean, I want to follow up on a couple of items. So one, just what you last said a minute ago is this like notion of access and frankly, what you just described is like an informational advantage behind your investment strategy, right? Like you're working on the growth drivers of these companies. And so that definitely presents you with a informational advantage that other investors may not have. 
just kind of interesting. I wasn't thinking about that when we first talked about this and, and we got to know each other. But man, that's a huge upside. And to the point of the access that you've got, you know, with all these agreements and, and the portfolio of companies you've worked with in the past, it must be, I mean, maybe not easy to raise money, but pretty easy. <laughs> what do you think? You no, know, it's, I mean, please believe when we first went out to go raise, we thought it could possibly be easy to raise money because we thought our story is so, was so unique. Yeah. And our access was so unique that we could really utilize the, the power behind that to get a lot of people excited about potentially investing. In short, raising money, raising a fund, none of it's easy. What we thought would might take us six months to 10 months turned into 16 months to 18 months. Market shift. Also, the way people, the way folks think about investing into funds is a little bit different, right? Like you're really going on someone's track record and you're much more likely to be able to raise a fund if you worked at Sequoia Capital for 10 years or mm. Excel Partners or you know some of the really big behemoths in the space. So for us, yes, we have a very unique model. Yes, we fought tooth and nail to raise the first fund. Mm. But the, the most exciting part is, and the, the thing that really thrills us is we knew we had to prove this model out for fund two. And fund one's always the hardest, but for fund two, we've proven out this model to where the proof is in the pudding. Our model works. We have some really incredible companies in our ecosystem and in our portfolio list. And, and so that will make the future rounds and the, fu- the future fundraises uh, a lot easier. But by no means was it easy. I mean, I'd probably say we had anywhere between called 700 and 800 calls to where we got today. And, and some people get it. And some people want to go elsewhere in terms of how they think about spending and investing their money. The last thing I'll say is is investing in a fund, it's a 10-year ride. So right. getting in front of folks that are true long-term investors that, that believe in our vision and our mission, and our mission really is, how do we lower the access barrier for the, the communities that are most at risk, that need the most help, specifically within the fintech space, and, and even more so fintech plus, not just call it like web two fintech, but or web one fintech, but thinking about these these tertiary industries that could really be innovated like fintech, or I'm sorry, like insure tech, like prop tech, like mm. e-commerce, like health tech. But fintech's embedded in all of these different industries, and there's a huge opportunity to innovate within. No, oh, I love that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, I want to come back to FinTech and ask you a couple questions there. But before we move on, and go back to fiat growth and the notion that you guys started before fiat was fiat, I guess, you were building this marketplace for partnerships. I think that might be an area 
I'd love to have you just explain how that those types of partnerships worked because it's not something we've covered a lot on this show and marketers out there listening may not be thinking about that as a lever. So how, how did partnerships work before you started Fiat and how they work today? Yeah, so when we talk about this, this marketplace model, for what it's worth, I'm a huge believer in marketplaces in general. Mm-hmm. Some of the better marketplaces, I mean, a lot of job marketplaces, companies like Fiverr and Upwork, you even talk about like Airbnb. That's a great example of a marketplace that is like an absolute thriving business. It's all a supply and demand type of opportunity. What happens is a lot of times, at least the world Alex and I were building in, um, still are building in, is once you get a certain amount of users specifically, and this can work B2B and B2C, but specifically in a direct-to-consumer business, what you quickly realize is you can't just keep building products for everything your clients want. You need to have your hero products that you're always going to sell and you're going to monetize on, but you've built a deep relationship with these users, which means you have their attention and they trust you to guide them in really thoughtful directions. So like for the example of Chime, the very large neobank, you're banking with these folks. Your money is in, in an account. And when they tell you something, you listen. At the very least, because you have money in the account, at the very, very most, it's because they might have a thought or some education that you can really hold on to that will help improve your financial health overall. So within this example of Chime, they have what, 13, 14 million users, something around there, probably growing, like definitely growing still. And that means, it doesn't mean just because Chime doesn't offer other products, it doesn't mean they shouldn't be recommending additional products that are going to help their users become better, better call like a finance minds. So in this particular instance, there was a marketplace built where we could go partner with other products that could help improve the financial health of the user. And the great thing is, is this actually can become an additional revenue stream because mm. this is affiliate marketing. For right. example, if a product enters this market, they say, Chime, I'd like to pay you $100 for every single Chime user that signs up for my product through Chime. And if you have enough users and you have enough products that are adding value and you promote those users the right way within your own ecosystem, that can become a thriving business. Mm. The same thing at Steady. We had five or six million 1099 workers. These are folks that are driving Uber, people that are having multiple part-time jobs to create a full-time salary. These are folks that, are, that have multiple part-time jobs to create a full-time salary. And again, these aren't W-2 workers. So their needs around benefits and tax help, it's very, very different than a typical W-2 worker. So our goal was to really curate a number of different product partners inside of this marketplace to help make their overall financial lives better. But again, by setting up that affiliate agreement, we were able to recommend these, users would then sign up. And then the next thing you know, if that's happening thousands of times month over month, you're able to turn a marketplace into a revenue generating feature of your products. Mm. There's some marketplaces where the marketplace is the product. Think of like a care.com where parents and Families can go on and go find care worker, maybe for your parents that are getting older, or maybe for your kid to have a nanny. But a lot of these other products will get direct to consumer products. Their hero product will drive all the users. And then over time, you can build a tangential marketplace to drive additional revenue and create this affiliate marketplace Mm -hmm. that not only adds value to your user, but also drives revenue to the business. 
Gotcha. Gotcha. No, I appreciate that. It's fascinating because it's like, the closest thing I have to reference is I, I did an internship at a computer company and they had partnerships similar, but maybe not as organic as you're describing it. You know, where you ship a computer and you had kind of like pre-installed trial software, essentially, and they would pay what they called a bounty back in the day. Yep. And a a very similar model, but maybe not as organic. It was more of the NASCAR approach (laughs) of uh, patches on your desktop. Well, Well, it's interesting because at the end of the day, all it is is a matching software. It's very similar to Tinder or Hinge, mm-hmm. right? It's like, what can we build to make it so it's easiest for you to match with something you need right? or even something you want? Mm-hmm. So the concept is very simple, but in terms of like designing someone's happy path to, to them getting exactly <laughs> what they want as simply as they want is the yeah. challenge. I love that. I love that. What is it about fintech that keeps you so interested? I mean, you... I can, you can hear the passion <laughs> for this. What is it about fintech and, and the focus on that space? I'll tell you this. I have passion for all spaces. If, if you were talking to my partners, <laughs> you, you would see a lot of the slacks that come by and being like me being interested in, in everything from the e-commerce space to the generative AI space, like, like me diving 20 feet deep into a lot of things. <laughs> I believe that fintech is the one industry that can truly have the largest impact on generational wealth. And I believe, again, that the majority of fintech innovation has really been focused on the populations that need the least fintech guidance. It is how can I monetize on people that already have money, where I believe the biggest opportunity are the folks that are struggling the most to make money, don't have any at all. And the way I constantly think about it is how can I help it so people can earn money? How can I make it so people can save money and how people can better invest money? And so those are like the three different columns and pillars that I really dive into. So again, with someone like me in a space like I'm in where I have exposure to all these different deals, my biggest competition is lack of focus. So I constantly need to have these three pillars to think about as a North Star. So when I'm looking at different businesses, again, if I'm looking at generative AI, I'm not just going down the hole of 18 different industries that have nothing to do with my focus. I can Mm -hmm. say, great, there's this really incredible trend, which is going to make a massive impact on the future of tech. Mm -hmm. Now, if I talk about earning money, saving money, or investing money, how can I plug this trend and concept into both of those? And what innovation can be gleaned from each one? Mm -hmm. And so again, I believe that there's a massive impact. I also believe that money is getting younger. And I believe that Gen Z, as they keep getting older, money and finances is going to be deeply embedded in every action they take. You're going to be able to buy stuff with a simple button. These A lot of teenagers are already engaging in work differently than our parents did, or even that we did. They're not no longer just doing a paper route or opening a lemonade stand in front of their house. They're reselling shoes on StockX. They're opening up Etsy stores. They're building stuff. And they have to pay taxes on that. There's all these opportunities to make it so we can deliver finance in a really digestible way that's embedded into people's day-to-day lifestyle, which will make it a lot easier for them to ultimately learn about finances at an earlier age versus like I had to do and I'm sure like you had to do, which is 
basically wait till you graduate college where your credit score is already low because you opened up a credit card because someone gave you free pizza and said, get a free <laughs> pizza if you open up a credit card on yeah. campus. Next thing you know, you're in like the 600s of your credit score and you graduate college and you're wondering why you can't go lease a car. Like, right. I think that world's behind us and there's a huge opportunity to make it so we drive that innovation to the next generation while also trying to help the current one. Yeah, no, it's, it's, I agree. It's fascinating. And I did get it my credit card that way. <laughs> a lot of us did. There's a lot yeah. of rules in colleges now of, of, of kind of predatory. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You can no longer, no longer do those type of campaigns. That's, it's truly fascinating. I mean, and one thing you said about fintech earlier, which I've experienced as well, like I, I had a failed startup that was in the kind of like fintech insurance space. But as you try to unpack some of these other systemic problems, like say health insurance or health payments, at the core of it, it really is all about the money, like, and how the money travels from one player to another player how that's managed, forecasted, paid out, et cetera, to impact some objective. So, I mean, the core of solving insurance, health insurance problems for U.S. Americans or Americans is going to be probably likely a fintech solution and the masquerading as an insurance solution. I, I think you guys just get to this place where it, it's really all about the money. Like it is the engine that makes business and, and solutions for communities work, I guess. I think that's 100% true. I also do believe that we are still trying to work. I always call it this like customer or client happy path. Mm -hmm. Talk about the healthcare industry. You talk about the bureaucracy. You talk about the, the lack of knowledge you have to even like paying a healthcare bill. Like there's lots of different yes. things that happened yeah. within the government, within legislature, within the last 12 months, opening up patient data in a massive way. Like I do mm -hmm. believe there's going to be this big opportunity within healthcare for someone to be able to ingest all like healthcare billing data and being able to take that data and make it so anyone, regardless of the bill they get from healthcare, they'll be able to make sure that they're not getting overbilled. Mm -hmm. They'll be able to get money back. But I think there's an opportunity to demystify a lot of industries that historically have been able to get by being in the business of just overcomplicating simple things. Like, yeah, for example, yeah. like I had my kid eight months ago, someone walked in at the end and said, Hey, here's your bill. Luckily we have good insurance, but I didn't even ask. I didn't even ask for an itemized receipt. I didn't ask for anything. I was just happy my kid was born, but right. why can't I get a similar receipt? Just like if I'm going to get a bagel and a drink at the bodega, why can't I get a similar type of, of receipt at a hospital? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. No, it, it really doesn't. It really doesn't. And, and not to continue down this insurance or health path, but I mean, just the, the number of players, to your point, that are involved in that ecosystem. And at the end of the day, there's two components of it, really. How much did I put towards saving for a risk that might happen or might not happen to me? And then how is that risk then pooled and paid out when I need it? And at the, at the core of it, that is all it was. And somehow or another, you know, it's a trillion plus industry. And there's just so many people, just your example of a bill, the number of people that touch that bill. At the end of the day, like, I think we all know this, right? Change is inspired by incentives. Mm -hmm. So you talk about 
change in the insurance base. This, this goes for all, all industries. Mm-hmm. Change is either you incentivize the business to do it the right way, or right. you incentivize the user to demand that it gets done the right way. Yes. The question is, as we talk about solving this problem is, obviously for something like healthcare, it's so embedded in bureaucracy and frankly, like government subsidy and so forth, a lot tougher to impact. However, you go to a user and you give them an, an incentive. And maybe that incentive is simply like, hey, on average, if you go and you just ask the, the, your doctor for this additional information, on average, we'll save you an additional $10 or 10% of what you originally paid. That is an incentive for me to go ask a follow-up question. Yeah. But again, it's really tough for industries where historically, the model hasn't been the simplest delivery system. You kind of have to walk in and you have to go have that incentive to go ask that follow-up question to make it right. Yeah. Well, let's go back to fintech. And you talked about like this earn, save, invest, focus or model, North Star that you focus on. What are some of the trends you're seeing or some of the predictions and, and that we should be paying attention to within the space? Yeah, you know, I, I spoke about one a little bit earlier and it's really around money getting younger. I really do believe that Fintech's going to be as embedded as social media is into the day-to-day life of the next generation. And so I also think that that goes hand in hand with this future of work where work is shifting, as I was talking about earlier, teens no longer just doing paper routes and, and opening up lemonade stands, but it really does open up this whole opportunity around healthcare benefits because they're non-W2 workers tax services because they're 1099 workers. And it's not just like this invisible thing that gets dealt with because you're a W-2 worker. So I do believe that the gig economy will continue to scale. I think it's going to, it's scaling beyond just like Uber drivers and DoorDash drivers, but it's scaling into, you know, more of like the upskilled work that could be Hmm. someone being a designer, stuff like Upwork and Fiverr and some of these other platforms, but it becoming more table stakes for there to be easy solutions for them to be able to get the services that they need to survive from both an insurance standpoint, from a healthcare standpoint, from a, a financial standpoint. Hmm. I also believe that, that ownership is shifting a bit. And when I say ownership, I mean like access to ownership. Historically, you know, what we've seen is you can only buy a house if you have you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars for a down payment, especially in the Bay Area or some of these other folks. Or you can only buy one full stock. And you know, if, if Amazon's worth $1,000 a stock, you can't have access to it. But we've already seen some of this happen with like stocks where you can buy fractional stocks. Mm-hmm. We're seeing worlds where you can buy fractional ownership of houses, of vacation homes, and, and a monthly dividend based on your ownership of it. But historically, what we've seen, again, this 80% of America have, hasn't had access to invest in products the way someone that's making $100,000 or more a year has. And those opportunities are opening up a lot, which I think is super exciting. And as long as the education and the literacy around what it means to invest is innovating at the same pace as investment opportunities opening up for these low to middle income communities across the country, I think it's a really huge opportunity to create generational wealth. Yeah. Well, and when you originally laid it out, earn, save, invest, I was thinking of it like old school, you know, like almost like a funnel, like I've got to earn to then save, to then invest. But when you just describe the trends around like fractional ownership, like I don't, yes, I, I do need to go through that, but not in the same old school way that I was thinking about it when you mentioned it. Because I don't need a big pile of cash. I just need a little bit to start down that journey. It's a good point. And like just 
remember, like I look at the world through the eyes of a growth marketer and then I look at the eyes as, as an investor. And as an investor, I have to constantly be thinking about what's the total addressable market for different folks. Hmm. Total addressable market for a product that is focused on both earning money so you can make money and then save money and then invest money. That's a product in itself that does all three of those things. Total addressable market for that is massive. The whole world needs that. However, a fractional investment product, it's not for everyone. It's for folks that have already earned money, already saved money, and are now looking for their money to go work for them. Hmm. And so, you know, when I talk about save, or I talk about earn, save, and invest, like you're either talking about the world for all three, or you're talking about different cohorts of the world based on where they are in their financial life, where they are in their career and so forth. Yeah. No, I love it. Love it. I want to get back to marketing (laughs) and what you're doing on the fiat growth side. As you think about the marketing, the role of the CMO and how it plays out, frankly, in the companies you're working with or you're investing in, how do you think about that? When do I, when do I need to focus on marketing and how should I think about it? Yeah, I I think, I think the word marketing is is starting to become a little bit of a curse word in the space. (laughs) I think about it as growth. I think it is like performance growth. Because at the end of the day, you know, a lot of times what marketing was, it's like, how can we drive as many leads, as much attention to the brand? Where where the shift is in the market is today, it's not how can I drive leads and attention, it's how can I drive revenue? And where growth leaders have become, it's, it's not about a Super Bowl commercial, it's about driving revenue, generating users. Mm-hmm. So I believe that growth is just as important as sales, just as important as probably the most important thing in any company. And because of both private markets and public markets, we are solving for two things. We're solving to drive revenue and we're solving to make it so that in order to drive revenue, we don't have to set a ton of money on fire to do it. So I believe that some of the the best growth leaders I'm a part of, that, that I know that I've seen do really incredible things with brands are the ones that are really smart testers. For example, if you're building a go-to-market strategy, and great, you have a thesis, maybe you have a couple different personas that you believe are going to be your ultimate users, like you have to be able to find a way to test to figure out what's working and what's not working in the most efficient, most cost-effective way, which means you can get as move as quickly as possible to what's working to where you can allocate the majority of your budget to where you are driving revenue generating users at a, in a cost conscious way. This really goes for all different brands. There's, I think some CMOs where of course, if you're the CMO of Coca-Cola, you know a lot about your users already. You have enough data to, to understand where you should be putting your budgets. And that, that's, mm-hmm. a, it's a, it's a much simpler problem, but obviously a lot more responsibility comes with that. But a lot of these private companies that are still trying to figure out product market fit, you have to be a relentless and obsessive tester of everything. There's no bad ideas, right? The data is telling us that we should test something, then we need to test it. But just to take a step back, you also need to make sure you have really clean data. One of the biggest mistakes I see happen is a lot of companies say, we have all these hypotheses and thesis, theses that we want to push. And I say, great, where did that thesis come from? And they're like, oh, you know, it's just like a feeling I have. Like, you know, I'm a leader. Like, I know these things. I'm like, no, no, no. Like, we have to take a data-driven approach to everything we do in growth. Mm. And great, if we have a thesis, that's great. Let's run a small test, a very small one, and see if we can back it up with data. And if we can back it up with data, let's put a little bit more money behind it. And if that money turns out to start acquiring users at a clip that we're excited about, that we can go brag about to our investors, let's put more money behind it. 
what the ultimate goal being is we don't just take big chances in, in growth. That's how you set money on fire. You have to methodically test into your greatest ideas and prove them over time. So as we're scaling the business, we're doing it a way where, again, we're doing it equitably and cost effective. Um, at the end of the day, like you have a budget, you have to stick to that budget. And we have to be able to use that budget in the most innovative way we possibly can. And sometimes that means just test, 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 test mm-hmm. as often and as iterative as possible. Yeah. Well, and I'm envisioning too this scenario where maybe the company started as a founder and product, small product team or develop, dev team. And they're like, okay, now we, ha- we have something, we have a prototype, we have a MVP, we need to get this in the market. And then they go, okay, well, now we need to hire a marketer and we need to, like, like you said, light a big pile of money on fire and see what happens. Your approach is much more pragmatic, much more agile, much more data driven. And it just flies kind of in contrast, I think, with, with maybe the image and why marketing might be seen as a, a dirty word in some cases. I don't know if you agree. Yeah, well, what typically happens is, is a lot of growth leaders, they get hired and not no one individual is, is going to be incredible at everything. You know, right. there's a couple things they're really good at and a couple things they're not that good at and a couple things they're just okay at. Like mm-hmm. the reason why we started Fiat Growth is, is Alex and I from a very early early days said, we just want to hire everyone that did all the things in the best possible way that we couldn't do ourselves. Because right. we understand like Alex and I could probably go get hired as a ton of different roles at an individual company, mm-hmm. but we'd still be the one saying, we're not good at this or we're not good at that. We're going to have to hire out for this. So a lot of times when we walk into an engagement, they're saying, oh, we're thinking about hiring a CMO. We're thinking about doing this. And I, and I say, listen, like there's a perfect time to hire a super senior leader. But keep in mind, you're never going to find one person that can do everything. They're still going to hire a team. They're still going to manage that team. And they're going to have to fill their own gaps. Sometimes doing that with a company like Fiat, where we're very much flexible and we can sub specialist in Mm. on a need basis versus there being this whole hiring process makes a lot of companies quickly turn into very nimble in terms of how they can approach and how quickly they can test and iterate different ideas so we can get, move as quickly as possible to success where we can start scaling in a really in a really effective way because we we figured out what didn't work as quickly as possible. Yeah. No, I love it. I love what you guys are doing. I mean, like I didn't think about this. You said you love marketplaces before, but with the combination of fiat growth and fiat ventures, it's you almost created a marketplace out of the two companies that you founded. They're very complementary in many, many respects. And I appreciate the insight into the fintech industry as well. I'd love to switch gears a little bit and kind of run you through the questions I ask everyone that comes on the show and, and lead off with my favorite question to ask anyone is, has there been an experience of your past that defines or makes up who you are today? Yeah, you know, I probably, I typically would say my daughter, but we already, we already touched on that. Yeah. I'm going to say something a little... Uh, this will get into this will be a little bit more deep, but yeah. probably my dad's passing. Mm. My dad passed away when I was 26. But I'm telling you, if there is a way for you to grow up as quickly as possible in a short amount of time, it's for someone very close to you to, to pass on. You learn about learn a lot about yourself. You learn a lot about people. You learn a lot about like what you think of the world in general. I felt like that both added to my intelligence and both my empathy. 
And it also made me look at the world through a hundred different lenses, or I'd say go from 2D to 3D in terms of how one thing can impact so many other things. And so I'm always someone that's looking for a silver lining, but as much as I miss my dad as he was one of, he was my best friend, there, were a lot, there was a lot of good things that, that that moment taught me. I love it. I mean, I'm sorry that that happened to you at an early age, but I, I love the, the insight and what you're taking away from that. So thanks. What advice would you give your younger self if you were starting this journey all over again? Try as many things as you possibly can. <laughs> Take chances. Yeah. Fall on your face. Don't get caught up in this race believing that you have to decide what you want to be mm. in college or after college. I look back on it, and don't get me wrong, I had my own doubts at the time. I'm so thankful that I literally had seven different jobs that were in completely different industries because all those tools turned into one of the most versatile tool belts that I've seen in my immediate network. So value different experiences. It's not always about just working your way up a ladder. Yeah, no, that's, that's good advice. Good advice. And I, I laughed at originally because you have had a lot of jobs, but you'd have more if you're doing it all. Over oh, <laughs> I, I would, I would do more, man. I would do more. And I think I was just like, I consider myself a risk taker, but like, yeah, today, today, naturally, like, cause I have so much more to lose. Like my risks are much more calculated, but when you're younger, you have this freedom that you don't yeah. realize you have until it's too late. Yeah. Yeah. There's many times I wish like, I wish we could live life backwards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Like, like we're old and feeble and we have to go to the grindstone and earn a living. And then as we get younger, we get to get more free and adventurous and take risks. <laughs> but we've it's got so the true. wealth build up, you know, from the earlier days. So. Yeah. Yeah. So true. But uh, what is there a topic you think marketers need to be learning more about? Or maybe it's something you're just trying to learn more about yourself? Yeah, you know, one thing I, I just love that I've been seeing is like, as I grew up, as I was loving marketing growing up, I always saw there was like this whole AOR model, the agency of record model. Mm -hmm. One thing that I've loved to see, I've loved seeing over the last decades is the shift from there's no one solution to one problem. There are many, there's like, we live in a world of experts and different perspectives. And one thing I'm, we're always trying to do at Fiat, but also I believe that like really all marketers should be doing is like, how can I surround myself with internal and external perspectives that are going to help my business, my ultimate goal continue to thrive. Yeah. But the one thing I know Fiat can always do is bring in a perspective that someone hasn't thought of before. And it's not because we know their business better than they do. It's because we've worked with hundreds of different businesses. Yeah. Therefore, we can tell them, I've seen this mistake before. Don't do it. It won't work. But a lot of times, surrounding yourself with that network is simply just surrounding yourself with exposure to all the things you don't know. And not a lot of like really senior leaders think that way because sometimes they're just hired because they... That's the only, hey, we're choosing you. You're the only person. But like, I would say like, as you're interviewing, I'd say, listen, I can't do it without other perspectives. Like make sure they know and you set the expectation that you got to bring the right minds around the table along with yours to make the impact that needs to be made. And I believe that's not done enough. And it's something that can probably be done a lot more. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with you. 100% agree. Well, um, are there any like brands or companies or causes that you kind of personally follow or you, you think other people should take notice of? 
So yeah, there, there's a number of different companies and causes that I could probably list off the top of my head. But one thing that I am starting to see that's really exciting is the podcast world is actually starting to get organized and <laughs> starting to become like a really interesting force from a marketing perspective. Mm. You'd ask me this five years ago, I'd say, listen, it's a great place to go like listen to really great minds, share their thoughts, and it's a great kind of education transfer. But in terms of it becoming a true marketing ecosystem, I've always felt like it was kind of it just hadn't quite gotten there from a technology standpoint. But now that I'm seeing creators creating like vertically integrated podcast ecosystems where, you know, they have stood up 15 different podcasts and they're all co-promoting each other. They're focused on very specific topics. So like brands can connect to them and understand the type of users they're going to put their brand in front of. People are just getting really smart with it. So I actually believe here, like, you know, over the next five to 10 years, we're going to see that become like a true space where marketers and growth leaders will be carving out budget to get in front of very unique, very specific and focused audiences. Mm, I love that idea. <laughs> Personally, I love that idea. So, That's true. Uh, I will say though, the, the creator of the podcast has to be very smart and, mm-hmm. and thoughtful around it, right? Like <laughs> what brands do I, even, even as you're thinking about what the podcast is going to be, what right. brands would I want to back this? Right, right. Unfortunately, I think there's going to be less hobby-driven podcasters. I do believe that a lot of folks that are doing it are going to be looking to turn it into a true business that is not going to be a passive income source, but the core income source. Right. Yeah. No, I, um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I have one more question for you. What do you feel is the largest opportunity or threat facing marketers today? So I'm going to flip this a little bit. I actually think a lot of growth leaders and marketers believe that AI is is competition. I think AI is probably like the greatest source of power. So I would I would actually implore whoever's listening, (laughs) accept this technology. It'll make your life easier. And if you we spend all of our time worrying about how we can make it benefit us versus how we can fight against it, the quicker we are going to make massive, innovative impacts on this space. Speed to testing. What I was talking about earlier, testing, testing, testing. The quicker you can create the content, the quicker you can test it, the quicker we can find out what works and what doesn't work, therefore getting us to a place where we can start driving revenue sooner. I think right now, or 10 years ago, brands were spending two months to churn out one piece of content. Now, a creator or an influencer can do it in 10 seconds. And remember, ship, ship, ship. Very similar to how a lot of, of entrepreneurs think about, hey, like product doesn't need to be perfect. Let's ship it. We just need to ship stuff and test it. And I believe that the generative AI space will give us the ability to ship and test on such a massive clip that we'll be able to iterate through as close to perfect as possible quicker. I love that idea. And I, I, I'm there with you on the, like, not, don't fear it, harness it. Uh, Exciting times. Yeah, it's, it's truly is. And, um, it's like, it's like the wild, wild west too, because you, it, there's so many different applications. And I don't think anyone knows what's going to stick right now, but, and it might all stick in the end, but a lot of white noise though. I agree. So. Yeah. 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 A lot go, of just, just go test products, you know, like obviously. Chat GPT is leading it, but you know, I, I play with another platform called Midjourney where you can oh, yeah. literally just do backslash imagine, 
write whatever world you wanted to create, it'll literally give you a visual of, of whatever your description is, not just copy. Um, yes. But there's all these different things popping up where you can start seeing, because again, like not everyone can use these platforms. Like you have to have a very specific prompt to get the creativity that you need to come out of it as an output. So yeah, start learning how to use these and they're going to be incredibly powerful for your for everything you do as a growth marketer. Awesome. Well, Drew, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with post-production support from Sam Robertson. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe on marketingtodaypodcast.com. Tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love hearing from listeners. You can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes and links to what was discussed in the episode today, and you can search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today.